The reading tonight is from Acts 18, 1-22. It should be up on the screen. After this, Paul left Athens and went to Corinth. There he met a Jew named Aquila, a native of Pontus, who had recently come from Italy with his wife Priscilla, because Claudius had ordered all Jews to leave Rome. Paul went to see them, and because he was a tent maker as they were, he stayed and worked with them. Every Sabbath he reasoned in the synagogue, trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. When Silas and Timothy came from Macedonia, Paul devoted himself exclusively to preaching, testifying to the Jews that Jesus was the Messiah. But when they opposed Paul and became abusive, he shook out his clothes in protest and said to them, your blood be on your own heads. I am innocent of it. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Then Paul left the synagogue and went next door to the house of Titius Justus, a worshiper of God. Crispus, the synagogue leader, and his entire household believed in the Lord, and many of the Corinthians who heard Paul believed and were baptized. One night, the Lord spoke to Paul in a vision. Do not be afraid. Keep on speaking. Do not be silent, for I am with you, and no one is going to attack and harm you, because I have many people in the city. So Paul stayed in Corinth for a year and a half, teaching them the word of God. While Gallio was proconsul of Achaia, the Jews of Corinth made a united attack on Paul and brought him to the place of judgment. This man, they charged, is persuading the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. Just as Paul was about to speak, Gallio said to them, if you Jews were making a complaint about some misdemeanor or serious crime, it would be reasonable for me to listen to you. But since it involves questions about words and names and your own law, settle the matter yourselves. I will not be a judge of such things. So he drove them off. Then the crowd there turned on Sosthenes, the synagogue leader, and beat him in front of the proconsul. And Gallio showed no concern whatever. Paul stayed on in Corinth for some time. Then he left the brothers and sisters and sailed for Syria, accompanied by Priscilla and Aquila. Before he sailed, he had his hair cut off at Sencria because of a vow he had taken. They arrived at Ephesus, where Paul left Priscilla and Aquila. He himself went into the synagogue and reasoned with the Jews. When they asked him to spend more time with them, he declined. But as he left, he promised, I will come back if it is God's will. Then he set sail from Ephesus. When he landed at Caesarea, he went up to Jerusalem and greeted the church and then went down to Antioch. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good evening, everyone. It is so exciting uh, to be back together this week. Uh, the release of Taylor Swift's new album is not the most exciting thing this week. It is that we can gather back together in person, um, and it's so great to have you all with us. Uh, welcome to, if you're joining us online or if you're in the overflow room behind me, uh, it is just so great that we can gather together as God's people in person again. Last week, we did a sort of trial service where we invited the members of our growth groups to church, and there was 58 people in the building, and everyone that I spoke to agreed that for some reason, it was just so much better than tuning in online. As great as it is to be back together, it's still not quite the same as what it was before lockdown began. 
whenever we were gathering together in February, the last Sunday in February, there was over 190 people in this building. Will we ever get back to that stage? Who knows? Maybe you've thought about that yourself as you've thought about coming back to church. When will church be back to normal? Let me tell you, it's a question lots and lots of ministers are asking as well. How will the church grow? Last week in Acts 17, we saw that it was the Word of God that grows Christians and the Word of God that rules Christians. The Word of God makes Christians, grows Christians, and rules Christians. And that's exactly how Luke summarizes the growth of the church in Acts. You might remember all the way back in Acts chapter 1, Jesus told his disciples to be his witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and the ends of the earth. As the disciples move from Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria, Luke summarizes that in Jerusalem, the Word of God increased. And he says that exact same thing whenever the gospel moves from Samaria into Asia Minor and Europe, the ends of the earth, the word of God increased. Throughout Acts, Luke makes it abundantly clear that it is the word of God that grows the church. But what does that actually look like? How does it come about? When I hear the phrase, the Word of God, I think of my Bible here. Is that how the church grows? By the printing and distributing of this book? Well, that certainly helps, but that's not what was going on in Acts. The Word of God was the message of this book, that Jesus of Nazareth was the Christ, that promised King of Israel that they'd been waiting for for 1,000 years that king of Israel, that the 39 books of the Old Testament written before Jesus was born, pointed forward to, promised would come. Paul's message was that the king had come. Luke tells us that the church grows by the spread of that word, of God's word. But what does that actually look like? That is what our passage this evening is all about. Luke shows us the pattern of church growth. And coincidentally, they all begin with P, partnership, persuasion, and perseverance. The pattern of church growth, the means by which the Word of God increases, is partnership, persuasion, and perseverance. We're going to think about those three things together uh, for the next few moments. But before we do that, it's important to look more broadly at the purpose of passages like this and Acts as a whole. So there's going to be a little bit of an excursus before we get to those points. So you're going to need to bear with me in that, but I'm hoping it'll be really, really helpful. Uh, Before we go any further, let's pray and ask for God's help. Heavenly Father, we thank you for preserving this account of the growth of your church in a city like Corinth. We thank you for the principles laid down for us as we seek to be your witness here in Belfast. We ask now that you would, by your Spirit and through your Word, teach us what we do not know, make us what we are not yet, so that we too might be faithful and fruitful witnesses of the Lord Jesus. We ask this in his name. Amen. So before we look at this pattern outlined in Acts, It's important to remember one thing, and this is important to remember when you're reading any part of Acts. 
It's that this record of the church's growth and the whole book of Acts itself is primarily descriptive, not prescriptive. What does that mean? It means that Acts is first and foremost an account of what God did in the first century to bring the gospel to the ends of the earth. Luke begins Acts by telling us that his previous book, the Gospel of Luke, outlined what, and the word Luke uses is, began to do and teach. The first book is about what Jesus began to do and teach. This second book is about what Jesus continues to do and teach. Acts is, first and foremost, an account of Jesus' work in the first century. And what that means for us in Belfast in the 21st century is that we shouldn't expect to see everything that happens in Acts to be repeated today. Acts is full of weird and wonderful things, but we shouldn't necessarily expect to see all of those things today. In Acts 1, a new apostle is appointed. Apostles today. In Acts 2, a group of 12 men have fire descend from heaven, land on their heads, and are miraculously able to speak at least 14 different languages simultaneously to a crowd to explain who Jesus is and what he had done. Nothing like that has ever happened again. In Acts 8, Philip appears to be literally teleported by God 30 miles west instantly. Nothing like that has ever happened again. Acts is full of one-time miraculous events. Acts is primarily descriptive. It tells us about a particular time in the history of God's people. Just because something happens in Acts doesn't mean that we should expect the same things exactly to happen today. And lots and lots of Christians get really confused when they expect to see some of the more miraculous, wonderful things, and they don't see it. However, just because Acts is primarily descriptive doesn't mean that there aren't principles that we can take from it, from that description. As I said, our passage this evening shows us the pattern of church growth in Corinth. But that same pattern is repeated throughout the Bible in those parts that are primarily prescriptive the letters of the New Testament. Acts is primarily descriptive, not prescriptive, but we can and should, from that description, draw principles for today. But we shouldn't expect to see the exact same things today. That's a really long-winded thing, but it's quite an important distinction to hold, and I hope it makes sense. If not, I would love to chat to you about it afterwards. It's a subtle difference, but it's important. With all that said, let's look at the pattern of ministry, the pattern of church growth in Corinth. Corinth was a huge city about 30 miles west of Athens, and it was everything you would expect a large metropolitan city to be. Corinth was known for its wealth, and it was known for its sexual deviancy. So much so that in the first century, if you were to Corinthianize something, you were to make it sexual. That's what the word meant to everyone else in the Roman Empire. So much so that the Corinthians were seen as the most immoral people, sexually immoral people, of the Roman Empire. It was the home of the temple to Aphrodite, the goddess of love, 
where temple prostitution and ritual sex acts were as normal as tea and toast is to us in Northern Ireland. How on earth would the church grow in a place like this? Paul himself says in his letter to the Corinthian church, as he reflects on his time when he arrives, that when he came to Corinth, he was full of weakness, fear, and trembling. Paul, the great apostle, was terrified of preaching the gospel in this city. I don't know about you, but I actually find that really encouraging. Maybe you are terrified of telling your friends about Jesus. Maybe you feel sick at the thought of telling your co-workers that you're a Christian. What will they think? Paul felt the exact same in Corinth. How was he going to fare in this debauched city? Well, the very first thing that Luke tells us that he makes really clear is that Paul was not alone. He partnered with others in ministry. We're at point one, partnership, if you're taking notes. You might have noticed the amount of names listed in these 20 verses. Priscilla and Aquila, Timothy and Silas, Titius and Crispus. Each of these duos partnered with Paul as he preached the gospel in Corinth. And each of these duos partnered with Paul in two ways. They serve together and they support together. The first duo, Priscilla and Aquila, Luke tells us that they were tent makers by trade. He tells us too that they weren't natives of Corinth, but had just moved there from Rome. Because in Rome, Claudius the emperor had recently expelled all the Jews from Rome. The Roman historian Suetonius, I think I'm pronouncing that right, Daniel will tell me after, records that in 49 AD, the emperor expelled all of the Jews from Rome because there were riots and disputes arising concerning someone called Crestus. Now, we can't be absolutely certain, but what, from what we've seen in Acts, in our other parts, and in, even in our passage this evening, it's very likely that Suetonus has misspelled Christos. In other words, Jesus. The gospel had gone to Rome, probably after Pentecost, was growing and caused an uproar in the Jewish community, so much so that the Roman emperor expelled every... The gospel is fact, not fiction. And these Jews, Priscilla and Aquila, have moved to Corinth for work because they've been expelled from Rome. At the end of the passage, Paul tells us that they moved to Ephesus with Paul to help with the church there. They bought a house, and there they hosted one of the congregations in Ephesus. About two years after these events, Paul wrote to, sorry, Paul wrote to the Corinthians from Ephesus, and he tells them, Priscilla and Aquila, say hello. Two years after that, Paul writes to the church in Rome, and he says, tell Priscilla and Aquila, I say hello. So obviously they'd moved back to Rome. And that makes perfect sense because we know that from 53 AD, the Jews were allowed back in. It all fits together. What we're reading is history, real observable facts. We're not dealing with fantasy here. Paul's partners, Priscilla and Aquila, served the church wherever they went. They gave Paul a place to work at the beginning of our passage. They hosted a church in their home. It's really easy for us, isn't it, to imagine Paul as this sort of lone ranger who goes out and does all of these amazing things by himself. 
But again and again, Luke makes it really clear that he was partnering with other Christians to do all of the work that he did. Unfortunately, many Christians today forget the New Testament's emphasis on partnership. They think that ministry is only done by the person at the front. But Paul partnered with people to get the job done. Not everyone preached, but everyone served. They gave their money, they gave their time, they gave their efforts, partnering together to get the gospel out. That's why serving in church is so important. There are lots of advantages to serving in church, whether you're showing people to their seats, cleaning the building so that we can remain safe, praying, reading, singing, leading, hosting, cooking. All of these activities will make you feel more a part of things, and that's a really good secondary benefit to serving, but that's not the primary purpose. The primary purpose is partnership, working together to get the gospel out there. That's what this church is all about. Paul served alongside Priscilla and Aquila, and the third Jew, Titius and Crispus, they did the exact same thing. The second set of partners are Timothy and Silas. You can see them mentioned in verse 5. Luke tells us that they came from Macedonia, and it looks like when they came to Corinth, they had some money with them, and they gave that money to Paul so that he didn't have to work at making tents anymore. He could preach the gospel full time. In Paul's letter to the church in Philippi, he thanks them for this money. Partnership involves serving alongside other Christians. It also means supporting full-time gospel preaching, whether that's at home or abroad. Here at All Saints and Uni Church, every penny we receive goes to support gospel ministry. At least 10% of our income goes to overseas cross-cultural ministry, and the rest is used to support what happens here in Belfast. If you're a visitor with us this evening, we're really glad you're here. If you're watching in online for the first time, really glad you're here. But this bit isn't really for you. Um, we're not after your money at all. This is for the regulars. If you're a regular, passages like this force us all to ask the question, am I using my money to grow gospel ministry? I know many of you are. That's the only reason we can meet together in this building and gather around God's Word. But if you're not yet supporting gospel ministry with your pocket, you're missing out on a key aspect of gospel partnership. And gospel ministry itself is missing out. It needs you to support its work. Gospel partners serve together, and gospel partners support together. The Word of God increases, the church grows through partnership. And all this partnership enables Christians to persuade others of the truth of the gospel. We're at point two, persuasion, if you're taking notes. Sometimes people become Christians instantly. I've seen that, maybe you've seen that. As far as we can tell from the outside, one week they're nowhere near Christianity. They hear a talk, they read the Bible, and boom, they're converted. It's absolutely amazing when that happens. But most of the time, it takes a while for someone to become a Christian. They need to be persuaded. They need to weigh the evidence. They need to see 
if this, if this all makes sense. They need to understand the implications that believing this will have on their life. Twice in these 20 verses, Luke tells us that Paul persuaded people. That's the word he used. In verse 4, Paul reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. Now, the Jewish Sabbath was on a Saturday, so every Saturday Paul went to the Jewish synagogue and, using just the Old Testament, tried to persuade them that the Messiah, the long-awaited King, had come. He had come, and he hadn't done what they expected him to. He died. He died on a cross, taking the punishment for his people. But he didn't stay dead. He rose from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and now he reigns, not simply as the king of Israel, but the king of the whole world. The Old Testament pointed towards this. Jesus had fulfilled what the Old Testament promised, and Paul was trying to persuade them, these Jews and Greeks, that this was true. But the Jews got fed up with Paul, and so they took him before the Roman senator, Gallio, and said in verse 13, this man is trying to persuade the people to worship God in ways contrary to the law. The church grows by persuading people of this truth. If you're with us this evening and you're not yet a Christian, whether you're in the building or with us online, let me be really clear to you, that's what we are trying to do. We want you to be persuaded that this is true. We don't want you to take a blind leap of faith that it might be true. Luke, the guy that wrote this book, who wrote that first book, the Gospel of Luke, uh, he tells us in the very first words of his gospel that he wrote these things down so that we might have certainty concerning the things that we have been taught. We want you to be certain. We want you to be persuaded. I think that's one of the reasons Luke gives us so many historical details. You might have noticed he tells us that Gallia was the proconsul of Achaia at that time. If you go to your history books and you'll see that there was a man named Gallio who was proconsul of Achaia at that time. It was a one-year post. We know when this happened. Gallio had a famous brother called Seneca, one of the most famous Roman philosophers of the time. We're dealing with real history here. That's why if you buy a Bible, nine times out of ten, there'll be a map at the back. This didn't happen in a long time, a long time ago in a galaxy far, far away. We're dealing with history we're dealing with truth. And if you're not yet a Christian, we want you to be persuaded. Because that's how the church grows. The church grows through partnership as people serve and support together. The church grows through persuasion, persuading others of the truth of its claims. And finally, the church grows in persevering, persevering in these two activities. Paul tells us in his letter to Corinth that he was full of weakness, fear, and trembling as he tried to persuade the Corinthians. Corinth, that huge, cosmopolitan, immoral city, was a daunting task, maybe the most daunting task. To make matters worse, not only was the culture of Corinth a million miles from Jesus, Paul faced persecution as well. He was kicked out of the synagogue in verse 6. 
He was dragged before the courts in verse 12. In verse 17, he witnessed the mob that took him to the courts grab their leader, a man called Sosthenes, because he didn't get the result they wanted, and they beat the life out of him. If that's what they do to their leader, what would they do with Paul? Paul needed to persevere in this tough place. Why did he persevere? Because God told him, verse 10, I have many people in this city. Paul knew that despite outward appearances, there were many people in that city who would repent of their sins and believe in Jesus. Luke tells us Paul stayed there a year and a half partnering with other Christians, persuading those who would listen, and persevering through persecution and hardship. And he did all this because God had many people in that city. It's really easy for Christians at the moment to feel weak and fearful. The culture is no longer friendly towards Christianity. Church is harder to come to now because of lockdown and in post-lockdown even. We're being cut off from society, both corporately as the church and individually by COVID. How are we going to keep going? We're going to need to partner together. Partner together, serve together, support together. Partner together as we try to persuade others knowing that it rarely happens overnight. These things take time. Partnering together, encouraging one another to persevere, knowing that God has many people in this city. There are many people out there who will repent and believe. Time and time again, the New Testament tells us of Paul taking comfort and being strengthened with, by other Christians. Some of those other Christians that Paul is comforted and encouraged by are mentioned in this passage, and they're mentioned throughout the New Testament, Priscilla and Aquila, Timothy and Silas, again and again told us, told to be Paul's partners in the gospel. Many of you will know how encouraging it is to partner together with others. Many of you will know how regularly gathering together in growth groups and on Sundays affect your Christian endurance. Hopefully, you're experiencing right now how gathering together in person affects your Christian life. Numerous people have told me of the damaging effect that lockdown has had on their Christian life, feeling cut off, spiritually dry, disconnected. That shouldn't be surprising because we need each other. We're partners in this task this task of persuading and persevering. If you're with us this evening and you're not yet a Christian, we're so glad you're here. We want you to be persuaded that this is true. And if you're not yet persuaded, that's absolutely fine. We know these things take time. We would love to help you to answer your questions, to help you see the connections so that you too can join us in partnership as we try and persuade others and persevere to the end. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you that Jesus promised to build his church. 
Thank you for this historical account of Jesus building his church, even in a city like Corinth. Thank you that you invite us to join you in this activity of building your church. Thank you that you don't ask us to do it alone. Thank you that you've given us each other to partner with as we persuade others and persevere. We ask, Father, that you would, by your Spirit, strengthen and encourage those who need to be strengthened and encouraged. We ask that you would help each of us to strengthen and encourage each other. Lord, give us the wisdom and courage we need to persuade others of Jesus and help us to persevere when it gets hard. We ask all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.